happy to be back at Cafe Racer Radio. You've tuned in to the Pink Noise Radio Hour. I'm your host, Sherry Hauser. And on today's program, I'm going to be talking to David Rendell. His business, The Freak Factor. And what he talks about is what makes you weird makes you wonderful. Let's get right to it. David Rendell, I am so happy to have you on the Pink Noise Radio Show. I'm happy to be here. It almost feels like we've done this before. <laughs> Funny you should say that. That's what happens when you don't press record and you begin the conversation anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we had our little warm up. We were just practicing. Yeah, everybody needs to warm up. Baseball players do it. Yeah, you got to yeah. do it for exercise, a little mental warm up. Well, as you know, I wanted to talk to you because your message, what makes you weird makes you wonderful, really resonated deeply with me. And yeah. I know we're going to go into that. We're going to talk more about that message and why it's so important. Before we do, one of the things that intrigues me about meeting people who are awake and alive and sharing their, their message with the world is when the download came, where yeah. were you, what was happening for you, when, when the message became so loud that you knew it was your work? Yeah, you know, it was it was this very slow download, right? I mean, I think we both lived through dial-up, right? So I think it was it was a dial-up uh, download. Um, so we'll start early. I mean, the the message came in opposition to the message I'd been hearing my whole life, right? Which is that I was broken, that I was bad, that I was wrong, that success is fitting in, doing what you're told. Uh, being like everyone else, following the rules, um, and that I fundamentally was seemingly incapable of that, right? When you don't want to do what you're told and you're supposed to follow the rules, then you're rebellious, you're obnoxious, you're inappropriate, you're immature. It's your fault, you're bad. And so I think the what makes us weird makes us wonderful was in opposition to being told my whole life that weird is awful, right? Weird is bad, weird is wrong, weird is unacceptable. Um, and the first time there was any hint that maybe that wasn't true, I mean, I wasn't one of those people, you know, some people go, well, maybe it was good for you that you got that message and, and as you fought back from that message, it's where you discovered yourself. That's, that's not it at all. It's a mis. It's, some people are like that, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to show you, I've got more than you think you're going to be sorry. I figured they were right, you know, you're telling me I'm broken and wrong and bad and everyone's telling me the same thing. I mean, they got a fish behind me. So think about that, right? When you're surrounded by the water, you don't, you know, you never question it. And so the first time I ever got a glimpse that there was something possible outside of everything that I'd been told um, was in college and I was a resident uh, or I wasn't, I was a college student there and I bumped into the resident director um, in the hallway, and he asked me if I was planning to apply to be a resident assistant for my junior year of college. Um, and I said, no, I'm the reason you have resident assistants, right? So let's see, it wasn't just what other people told me to become my identity, right? No, I wouldn't even try to do something like that because that's something that good and successful and effective people would do. That's not something that I would do. I'm the person you, you do that for, right? Um, 
And then that's, that was the beginning of the first kind of, the first time I'd heard anything different was possible as he said, no, Dave, you know, I see a lot of myself in you. I see a lot of the things people thought were wrong with me as what's right with you. I know I turned out okay, basically. And I see that in you and I see a lot of what you are as potential influence, potential leadership. It's just depending on how you want to direct it. Um, and so I didn't get it immediately and I didn't change my whole life immediately and I didn't feel validated immediately and I didn't start a whole new path immediately. But that was the beginning of, 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 of a crack in the, 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 the wall that had been in front of me the whole time or the mirror that had been telling me who I was. Um, and so I think that was the beginning of it was somebody telling me that maybe everything, I mean, when your parents, your teachers, your employers, when everybody tells you the same thing, you don't even think it's possible anything else is true. So I think that was the first one. And if we want to stop there and maybe dig into that, that was the first kind of break um, that started me open up the possibility and then having me think that maybe it was possible that something could be good about being weird, that something could be good about a weakness, that there was another side of the story that I'd never been told. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really powerful message. What I, what I hear you talking about sounds like the dismantling of limiting beliefs. Somebody fed you some poison and you drank it and now it's your poison. You know, it's, it's, it's the lens in which you saw yourself in the world through these ways in which other adults labeled you. Yeah. Um, I, I study authentic relating and I'm a, I'm a leader in the facilitation practice around that work. And there's, a, there's an exercise we do around undamming. And we label the things that we see based on the experience and information that we've received so far. And so as we have experiences, as we encounter other humans, we label things and in doing so, we kind of damn them to that. We put them in a box, we contain them. And, and it becomes that, that their capacity is now limited. And so when we receive those and we take them on as our own, I mean, they become limiting beliefs. And so it sounds like what you're talking about is the dismantling of those. And the, when, you, when you saw yourself through the eyes of the resident professor, he showed you a new way. He opened up the possibility. Yeah. Or showed me that, yeah, maybe not the new way right away. Right. But that there was another way of looking at things or that, you know, maybe just a hint, right. Maybe something else was true. Yeah. Maybe that something else was true. Yeah. Yeah. It, just this weekend, uh, I was in deep meditation and I received a download about a label that I had, I had accepted about myself and it's not only not true, the exact opposite is true. I am actually all of that. It's, it's really, it's just, it's a fascinating thing to work through. Yeah. And I feel so grateful that, that you, that me and others can, can learn. And so what is that process of learning for you that, that you got to redefine yourself? Well, so I think it started there. And so then that led to a study of leadership. Um, which put me in leadership positions, which at least marginally, you know, it wasn't just about doing what you were told. It was about 
you know, being in charge, right, which was a good fit for me, right? And I saw that I was good at that, that that, that went well for me, that people started offering me those opportunities in small ways. I mean, it was in a small town and people were like, hey, do you want to join the Chamber of Commerce board, which is volunteer, you know? So it wasn't like I was getting um, this big promotion or something, but the fact that they'd even asked, right? And then the fact that it would go well and I do these little talks um, at the Chamber of Commerce banquet and make this little joke and everyone would laugh. And, you know, my whole life, that's what you were in trouble for, being the class clown, for talking too much, for goofing around. And now I was doing it sort of professionally and people were loving it. And um, that along with what I was actually just straight up learning, one of my strengths on the Strength Finder profile is input. I just love to learn. I just love to read things, listen to things. My wife yelled at me once when we were first married because I was reading the back of the ketchup bottle and she kind of like almost threw it across the room and was like, what could possibly be so interesting on the ketchup bottle? Um, so I'm just a person who enjoys just kind of taking things in from every direction. Um, when I run, I listen to a podcast. When I drive, I listen to a, an audio book. Well, you know, I'm just constantly, um, and so I was listening to a book on uh, positive psychology on developing your strengths that I never heard, again, never heard that perspective that you could just throw away the weaknesses. Don't worry about them. Just build on what you're good at, which assumes you are good at something. And that was like a whole new thing, right? I grew up in a paradigm of very much like make sure nothing's wrong with you. Check to make sure even when you're doing things well that you're not becoming proud or um, that you're not uh, developing some kind of Achilles heel or there's not some kind of chink in the armor, always kind of be checking for negatives. Um, and so that was a little bit of a breakthrough for me. And then I just, it started with a question, I guess. I wonder if my biggest weakness is a strength. That, um, and again, very small, it wasn't a download in like, oh, my weaknesses are strengths. It was a question. The, the initial phase was an intuition based on um, experiences and based on just straight up, you know, knowledge transfer. Um, and it was a question, you know, I wonder if my biggest weakness is a strength and just asking that question, not rhetorically, asking it seriously, asking it with an interest in finding out if it was true and discovering that not only are my weaknesses strengths, but other people's weaknesses are strengths. I think pretty much everybody's weaknesses are strengths. I developed an assessment to show people how their weaknesses are strengths. Um, and I think the real, I don't even think the download is over yet because even I think one of the biggest processes, uh, parts of the process was sharing that idea, that question, that maybe, um, with other people and having them go, yes, absolutely. You're definitely right. Holy crap. That's amazing. That's super helpful. And the more that happened, the more confidence that gave me in the message, right? Um, I remember one time I was at an event and there was a Harvard marketing professor um, and she got up after me um, and talked to these 75, you know, business founders at, a, at, a, at MIT um, at the competition there in Boston. And she said, um, if you want to be the, she was talking about it in a company sense. And she said, if you want your company to be the best um, at something, you have to decide what you're going to be bad at. Um, what you're going to do poorly. And uh, I was like, oh my gosh, this is even bigger. You know, I was only doing it personally. I was only doing it professionally with your career. I didn't know for sure if it worked on kind of a business level. And so I'm even just continually to this day discovering it's true in different ways. I started 
talking to people about how this is true in marriages, how this will help you with parenting. Um, so I think it just continues to be an exploration of how true is it, where is it true, how is it useful, um, and it's just a continuing journey and a process. I'm glad you used the word journey because it was coming to me that I wanted to ask you as you kind of escalated the story and added more layers of how you began at the personal level, at the interpersonal level, helping individuals, you saw how it could grow professionally. And I've heard you talk about the profound impact of of using some of these theories in your relationship, in your primary relationship. And you've got a book for even parenting, um, The Freak Factor with, with Kids. For kids, yeah. Yeah, for kids. And so I find that super fascinating. One of the, one of the things I want to ask you about, though, is where you found your resolve and your fortitude to, to pursue this as your work. Because in order to dedicate more time to sharing this message i'm guessing you had to say no to something else some kind of nine to five monday to friday employment that would put you in some you know society structure that is the norm and you have this rebellious streak all along it sounds like and so maybe that wasn't such a hardship for you but i know for me and other solopreneurs it's really hard to to feel like you have a message, but to be in your own bubble in the dissemination of it. And so where did you find your support and your strength to go Yeah, on? that's a good question. I think a lot in the, the feedback and the response from other people, right? That, that it resonated with people, that it helped people. Like you, you talked about the kids book. So that was a response to feedback from people when I would do a talk, but it would be for entrepreneurs. It would be for executives. It would be about managing people and getting the most out of them and leadership based on seeing their strengths instead of their weaknesses. And the feedback afterwards would be, yeah, 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 that's great. And that'll be helpful. And I'll use that at work. But I got this kid with ADD. I got this kid with dyslexia. I got this kid with fill in the blank, right? And so I wrote that book because the people were saying, I even did a talk once for a marketing group and I only used marketing examples and I didn't use the relationship examples that you were referencing. And the first question in Q&A was like, this would work for parenting, right? And so it wasn't me being like a marketing genius or me going, you know what the world needs. And so it really was very much based on feedback from other people and the fact that it was resonating with people and then people talking about what they heard. One of the things that I do now when people say, oh, Dave, I really liked your talk, is I've stopped saying thank you, or I'm glad you enjoyed it, or whatever. And I especially do this in writing, you know, like on LinkedIn or something like that. But I also do it in person. I go, oh, great. What, what part of the talk was the most helpful or interesting for you? That learning, I think, was a part of it. But the other part of it was, again, it was a really slow, it was a really slow journey. I had my nine to five, which wasn't quite a nine to five, and it was a better fit. So let's even take a step back from professor. So it was professor then speaker, but before professor, it was nonprofit executive helping people with developmental disabilities to get job opportunities. Um, and before nonprofit executive, it was just nonprofit worker helping people with disabilities to get job opportunities. That's what I started doing right on college. And along the way, getting education, um, to open up doors for me in my future. Um, and, and again, but think about what educate, I mean, this goes strongly to what you're talking about. 
getting a degree so that you can get a job is saying, I have to prove to those people that I have the things that they want me to have. And I have to get this external certification to document that I can do. Whereas professional speaker, there's none of those things. You, you don't have to have anything. If people will pay you to speak, you can speak. But the model I was working on, and then even I got my doctorate because I wanted to be a college professor someday, and you can only do that full time if you have uh, you know, that, that terminal degree. So my whole life was built on that, okay, what do I have to do to fit inside of the qualifications and requirements of those people? Um, and so it was a very slow process to stop doing that and start doing my own thing. So um, I think college professor was a much better fit for who I was than working in the nonprofit world but there were still a lot of limitations of the bureaucracy, of the very slow moving, of the very uh, narrow view of what good and success are, the very limits to what I could do. I had a lot of freedom in the classroom and I enjoyed that, but there was still a curriculum and there were still guidelines and there were still requirements and it wasn't just like do what you want. Mm -hmm. um, and so then becoming a professional speaker was, you know, one step closer. So what I try to teach people is alignment doesn't necessarily always happen in a moment, right? It doesn't happen as you throw away everything and you immediately find this perfect thing that you then do forevermore. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, you know, even when I started my own business while I was, so I started my business while I was teaching full time and initially thought it would be consulting. And I was like, oh boy, that's just kind of managing without any actual authority or position. And it's kind of messy and I don't like it very much. And I started doing more training and that was a better fit, but that's very long-term. There's a lot of objectives and there's a lot of structure and worksheets and facilitation. And that's not as much me, but it was better. And then I started doing breakout sessions and that doesn't pay very well, but that was at least closer and they were shorter and, and more well-defined. And then I did my first keynote and I'm like, oh, there's the thing right? There's the thing. And I think that's the thing now. It's not a slow journey now. That's the thing that I feel like I could do that until I was 85. I think that is my thing. That's something I can do as well or better than anybody else can do. It's something I enjoy as much or more than any other thing that I could be doing. But all of that was a process. And so it was also a process of that letting go and, and feeling safe. So my personality isn't a um, quit my job, give my boss the middle finger and put a bunch of money on my credit cards and hope it works out kind of person, you know? And so my business was probably 80% of my income before I quit, um, before I quit teaching. Yeah. Um, so part of what I wanted was a decent, I wanted proof that this could work, right? I wanted proof that people were interested in this. And that's part of what it was. Even at the beginning, I didn't call it the freak factor because I thought that sounded too unprofessional. I called it discover, you know, finding your, your hidden strengths and weakness or something like that. And once I started calling it the freak factor, um, it was the most requested one that people had. They're like, oh, well, you have all these other talks, but this freak factor thing sounds, sounds, sounds interesting. I wore a pink shirt one time because I tell silly stories about how living with all of my daughters is turning me into a woman. And um, that led to pink shoes, which led to pink pants, which led to pink shirts and pink tattoos and pink watch bands and pink glasses and uh, pink everything. But that was a journey, right? It was 
my initial job in the way I dressed was to look like an adult. I was in my late 20s when I became a college professor and my, I was sometimes teaching people who were twice my age, my, my parents' age. And my biggest goal was be professional, look successful, be someone they can respect. So, so the pink took me a long time too. Like, so that's, I guess, my story over and over again is that I'm not a flash, I'm not a moment kind of massive change kind of person. Uh, I learn my lessons slowly. I kind of try things out and see what happens. I, I, I make changes based on feedback, consistent feedback over time. Um, and in doing that now, I mean, the foundation that I have is rock solid. I mean, it would take, you know, an atomic bomb for me to, to question what I teach now, to question who I am, to change that, to throw that away. And that confidence then you know, gives me this passion that I want to share this with everyone, you know, anywhere in the world. I, w I want to tell those kids that I, I wish someone would have told me when I was in school. I want to tell those teachers because I wish somebody would have told my teachers. I want to tell those parents because I wish someone would have told my parents. I want to tell those leaders because I wish somebody would have told my bosses. I want to tell those, uh, I want to tell people about this in their relationships, tell couples about this because I wish somebody would have told me this when I first got started. Um, with my relationships. And so um, that's, that's where I'm at now, but it didn't start that way. It started with a question and now it's definitely a statement, right? What makes us weird, makes us wonderful. What makes us weak, makes us strong. And I could take, I could take challenges on that for hours and hours. I could take Q and A on that for hours and hours and I would never run out of examples. I would never run out of um, support for that perspective. I would never run out of ways to answer the difficult questions people might have. And in fact, that was even one that I made in the book. There was a lady, I still remember, she worked for UPS and she was in one of my college classes and she loved the talk, but she got mad at the end and she said, so you're telling me I got to quit my job then to find my freak factor because my job doesn't make me happy and I don't like it. I just need it to pay the bills and I can't quit my job, so I don't like this. And so, that's fair, right? She was scared. She liked the idea, but she was scared about the implications. And so in the book, there's seven steps for how to find your freak factor without quitting your job, right? Volunteer on the side, do like I did, do something part-time on your own on the weekends, get a part-time job, work two part-time jobs, one to pay the bills and one to explore something new. I mean, there's a bunch of ideas in there because I wanted to be useful, not just you know, blow people's world up by telling them there could be something better, but uh, you're probably never reasonably going to be able to get there, right? Um, and so even that was sort of a journey of, I asked the question, people asked me questions, and then I built something that was hopefully useful to people instead of just uh, difficult or disruptive, I guess. Mm. You mentioned relationships, and I, I'm delighted to hear that there is a kind of more information in your book, like sort of seven tips of how you two can explore. Um, but you mentioned relationships and that really stuck with me at the time that I, that I met you and I first saw you speak, um, I had ended a relationship of 22 years and I was oh, wow. maybe a year and a half out of that at the time, maybe close to two years out of that. And you gave an example about your spouse and I might not remember the specifics, but I remember how it made me feel yeah. You had so many beautiful, poignant examples about family life that you used in your talk. And there was something about 
um, I believe that she was away. She was out of town on work and you needed to find something in your house. Batteries. No, you got yeah. it. I remember you sent me the message on LinkedIn. That's You've right. got it better than you think you do. Yeah, batteries. So um, because you and your wife have different learning styles, and your brain works differently, and you've acknowledged those differences in each other, and you not only acknowledge them, you accept them, and you love the different parts of each other. So you needed to find this thing, and you knew that she'd know exactly where it was, and you were able to reach out to her at her distance, and she was able to walk you through. Like in this cupboard, on the second shelf, there's three bins, and the bin on top, if you open it up, on the back corner, you'll find a baggie, and in that baggie, there's a label, and that's what, you know, and it was yeah. so specific. And, yeah. and, and the reason that that resonated and stuck with me is because I spent a lot of time being frustrated that my ex-partner didn't understand my language. Yeah. In, in sticking with that, like, I, I didn't understand his. And, yeah. and we spent a lot of our time being frustrated. And, and that frustration grew into resentment. And that's the first part of that story, too. The first part of that story before the batteries, and I do it earlier in the talk, is that she's always stealing my water, right? That she's always, every time I set down a water cup, cause I, you know, I do Ironman triathlons and I do ultra marathons and things like that. And it's, you know, I'm in North Carolina. Even today I ran at um, 8 a.m. And I, I could tell, cause I weighed in before and after I lost two pounds just from sweat in a 30 minute run, you know? So I'm always drinking water and she's always taking it, right? Like if, if I don't hold on to it, I joke that if I don't have a Camelback backpack on, I can't keep my hydration around. Um, I literally have started announcing things. So like I'll set something down in the kitchen because I'm going to be going on a long hike and run the next day. And I'll say, I'm putting these snacks and these beverages on the counter because I plan to use them immediately in the morning. Because if I don't, they'll be gone. And I used to get frustrated. And now to your point, I communicate differently because I know that matters. But I also appreciate something that just used to frustrate me. I used to only see the downside. And now I still know the downside is there. It's not trying to tell people there's nothing wrong with your partner or you should love it all the time or it's not frustrating. It is. But there's another side of the story, right? And the other side of the story is if I need a AA battery, she knows where they are. She makes sure we have them in stock. They're available. I can find out from anywhere she's got things organized. My house is very clean. I'm just dehydrated because she stole my water, right? And so, but that, you're right. That took a long time. We've been married for 25 years. And to be fair, we almost didn't make it to 25 years many times because my idea was she needed to be more like me. Her idea was I needed to be more like her. And we were both stuck in that mindset instead of saying but again because neither one of us could see the weaknesses as strengths we just saw them as weaknesses right and so once you know that it might be true and then once you can see specifically oh that makes me so mad but i also love this and here's the key that you can't have the one without the other right that a person who is scoops up your water also doesn't have pizza under their bed and you have mice living in there right it's nice to be with somebody who keeps the house clean? You know, my daughter was just joking about um, finding out that her boyfriend wasn't changing his sheets at his college apartment very often. And I was like, I don't know what the schedule is. You know, I know it happens. And my wife loves it. She calls it clean sheet day. It's one of her favorite days of whatever month or I don't know, quarters. I don't know when it happens. Um, 
But I said, I honestly don't know what the appropriate schedule, I don't know what he should say, right? Did he, should he say, I changed them two weeks ago? Like, what's the program? And so there's all these invisible good things that are happening that I'm not acknowledging because I just want to be frustrated that she's stealing my water, that she's, she's hiding something that I set down, she's organizing something uh, that I was trying to keep visible. Um, and that's, yeah, that's definitely changed our relationship to accept that, but not just to accept it, to appreciate it. And to then, I call it affiliation in the book, to partner with someone who's strong where you're weak, to be willing to not just grudgingly go, well, okay, I guess that's the way it's going to be, but go, isn't it fantastic that I, and also not to imagine, and I think this is what destroys relationships, to imagine there's someone else out there who's all strength and no weakness, who's all good and no bad who's all right and no wrong, and that, that if we could just find that person, then things would be better. It, it's not our fault, it's we had a crappy partner and there's a better one out there. And certainly there are situations, we don't have to get in that, where some people are legitimately sort of bad, if you wanna say that, but a lot of it comes down to seeing those, those two sides, and we rarely do that because we're, we're stuck in a mindset that says sort of my way is the good way or the right way, or even not my way, maybe just the way I was brought up, the way my parents taught me what good wives do, what good husbands do, what good spouses do, what good men do, what good women do, what good partners do. Um, and that those may not be true in this particular relationship. And we have to be able to adapt our, our viewpoint for that person that we're with. Yeah, those are, those are so just stories. Yeah. I've, I've come to understand that people are always doing the very best they can with what they have. And, and the memory of, you know, making myself wrong or making my ex-partner wrong because they weren't, we weren't seeing the same thing the same way. And, and it's amazing in all these years since and the work that I've done um, on myself and the, the exploration I've done and the, and the work with authentic relating. I mean, I've been with a partner now for a year and a half where the amount of joy, the amount of acceptance he said to me early on in the relationship that the only thing that would jeopardize our partnership is if I stopped being me. I mean, being told that, being told that not only do I love you, but like all the parts. Yeah. It, 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 you have to be you in order for this to work because yeah. that, that's who I want more of. Just yeah. give me permission and it, and it creates this foundation of, of safety that that um that there is sort of no wrongdoing yeah that, that in even if your partner doesn't like a thing a way that's happening you know like even if you don't like the way the water's being moved like you understand that that comes with the territory of a person who is neat and organized yeah and that's what i get to experience in my new relationship is yeah. loving all of the ways in which i receive right there's so much gratitude and from that place, life is so much more beautiful, yeah. so much more rewarding and fulfilling. I mean, it's just mind-blowing, the expansiveness of love. It's almost as if it's an entirely new definition. Like, I need a new word to right. describe the love that I'm experiencing now. Right. And um, I love that it's possible. Yeah. I'm delighted that it's possible. And it's possible yeah. for, for others as well. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that you've shared stories with me here. Well, I think stories are powerful. It's one thing to say, I read this, or I think this, or here's some bullet points, but stories prove that it's possible, at least in one situation at one time. And I think stories are more memorable. 
but they also give us, you know, possibilities that we may not have seen otherwise. Um, and it's harder to argue with a story. You may not like it, or it might be difficult. Um, but if it's true, then we have to grapple with the truth of that, right? We have to grapple with the truth of the fact that my weaknesses turned out to be strengths, that my marriage is better because I see my wife's weaknesses as strengths, um, that I'm a better parent because I see my kids' weaknesses also as strengths, um, that some businesses succeed because they see their weaknesses as strengths. And that might be a hard lesson or it might be confusing because it's so disruptive based on what we've heard for most of our lives from most people and most advice. Um, but the stories kind of leave the person going, well, if I don't like that, what do I do with the fact that this is happening in this business or in this person's life or in this relationship? How do I respond to that? Because it, that's, that's true. Um, I may not like the implications, but it's true. What do I do with that? And it, it leaves the, instead of, if it's my opinion against your opinion, then, then we can just go on that all day. One of the reasons I think the freak factor has been successful is because I think people want to believe it's true first for them, right? Nobody, nobody struggles, at, very few people struggle initially to go, oh, my weaknesses are strengths. Oh, the worst things about me are the best things. Very few people struggle with that message, right? They, they see all the wonderful implications. In fact, I'd have people, I do this assessment where they can see how their weaknesses are strengths and, and they see the strength and the weakness right next to each other on the piece of paper. Can I take this home to my spouse or my partner? And I'd be like, yeah, but remember their weaknesses are strengths too. And then they're like, oh yeah, okay. I just wanted them to know I'm more awesome than they give me credit for, right? But it goes both ways, doesn't it, right? But so initially people jump on board and then it's easier to kind of keep moving. Whereas if the message was like, your kids' weaknesses are strengths, but like yours aren't, then people are like, I don't know, I don't like that. Like that's, but when it starts with them, they love that message. Oh, my spouse should appreciate me differently. My partner should appreciate me differently. My boss should appreciate me differently. Oh, I want people to accept and appreciate me. Okay, sold. And you're like, oh, but it's also true in every one of your other relationships and you have to do the same for other people. And then they're like, okay, yeah, okay, maybe. Like it's not as difficult because they can accept that first part so easily and so quickly. And then it's, it's it, it, and I've told people this, I've said, you know, the freak factors ruined my life. You know, I used to be able to sit on an airplane and judge other people as being worthless human beings because of the way they behaved on the airplane, by, their, by the way they uh, pushed somebody out of the way or by the way they jammed their bag in a spot that was for someone else or by the way they treated the flight attendant or just by the way they looked. I could, I could have righteous indignation about what a, what a bum that person was. And now I go, well, that thing that's bothering me is probably also a strength and they probably do that because, you know, they found, you know, <laughs> I immediately go into trying to see the other side of the story. It becomes very difficult for me to just write people off, which, you know, regardless of whether we like to admit it or not, is kind of fun and enjoyable. And there's a certain amount of satisfaction that comes from being up here while other people are down here by being better while other people are worse. And when you can't do that anymore, that's a real challenge and that's part of me. I think you talked about authenticity earlier, at least when we were talking uh, before we started, that's part of the authenticity for me. I don't get to go on stage and talk about it and then tell my kids they have to sit still, be quiet, do what they're told, conform, fit in. I don't get to go home to my spouse 
and tell her she has to be what I want her to be and I don't need to change, she needs to change and I'm right and she's wrong and I don't, I don't get to, to, to mistreat the people that I randomly come into contact with throughout my life and not offer them that same grace. Um, and so it's made, it's, it's been a, but it started with, I wonder if my weaknesses are strengths. And once I saw how true that was, it got easier to imagine it was true for other people, but that was the breakthrough. And I think that's what helps the message get through to people is they can, they can see very quickly how that might be true for them. And they can see all the advantages to believing that and to thinking that that might be true. And then they're willing to do some of the work that might be required to offer that same opportunity to, for, to, for other people. I love that in that story, what I get is that it begins with a practice of self-compassion, of having grace with yourself. And once you can have self-compassion and grace, you then basically fill up your own bucket, right? You fill up your own love bucket for yourself and being compassionate and graceful. Then you can offer it to others. Well, yeah, because I mean, the reason parents put pressure on their kids to conform and fit in and do things differently is because they were like, that's what I had to do in school. I had to stop being myself. I had to subordinate my own needs and my own interests, and my own desires and my own values in order to get a good job, in order to get a good house, in order to get a good spouse, in order to. And so since I had to go through that, that's what you have to go through. This is just the way life is. And I'm miserable and fighting and you have to be miserable and fighting. And if you're unhappy, that's the way life is. And I'm sorry. And so they're not doing it. I always talk about the difference between intention and framework. I think most people, you kind of said earlier, are doing their best. I think most people have the right intentions. They just have the wrong framework. And so we, we do it to our spouses and our partners too. You know, we, we were like, no, I'm trying to achieve uh, a right and a good ideal that I have. And I'm fighting myself and fighting to discipline myself and control myself and manage myself. And I don't accept myself for who I am. And so I'm certainly not going to accept you for who you are because we're all supposed to be in this constant process of battling against ourselves. And if I'm battling against myself, I have to battle against everybody else as well. And so, yeah, you can't start accepting other people's bad or other people's weaknesses unless you've been able to do that for yourself because you just think it's not true. Why would you accept it? Because that's not what you should do. You should fight it. You should, you should, you should, challenge it you should have victory over it and if you're trying to do that for yourself you you even think of it as a good thing i'm i'm just perfecting you as a spouse i'm perfecting you as a person by constantly challenging you to be better to stop cleaning up the water to calm down to relax to take it easy to change who you are because that would make you better and then i would love you more you would improve and we'll keep going up this ladder um, and that's, that's simply not true. And so, yes, if you can't, if you can't believe that it's possible for you and if your self-improvement plan is to keep uh, tearing yourself down in order to build something better and you don't believe there's something good in there to begin with, then you're going to do the same thing to other people as well. Wow. Word. Word. So much of what you just said reminded me of my, my kind and, and caring and loving parents who just wanted the best for me. And the way that they knew to keep me safe was to keep me in this container, right? Because, because dare you not stand out and draw too much attention because that's uncomfortable, right? Something, something might happen there. I might not be safe if, 
if if I if I got too much attention for, yeah. for being loud or being boisterous or being big. And so or it might make you too proud and it might make you too full of yourself and you might be too impressed with yourself and then you would lose your humility and then you would be worse. And yeah, I'm trying to do what's good for you, but what's good for you is to not think you're good, right? Yeah. Yeah. And even that area of when I'm too young to know that um, what the correct way to be is about just being polite. You know, growing up in Canada, there's this thing about politeness and appropriateness, right? And, and there was this time and we were at my dad's friend's house and they had an older daughter who would just bake cookies. And, and I was young enough that I just had no filter. These cookies were delicious and I wanted to eat as many of them as I could. And they probably watched me eat half a dozen cookies. I don't know. But at the end of the night, we're standing at the door and we're saying goodbye. And the hostess probably being sarcastic. Well, Canadians aren't sarcastic. They, you know, but teasing, would you like another cookie, Sherry? And so I'm being offered something. I want it. So if I'm being offered it and I want it, I'm going to say yes. And my parents were so embarrassed that I didn't know better, that I didn't know better to say no. Yeah. And so I learned a lesson there that it wasn't okay to say yes, please. It wasn't okay to accept what was being offered to me because I should have known better. So there was something wrong in my wanting. Yeah. Right? And, and there were so many lessons like that in my youth about, you know, I, I was getting dressed for a thing and I had a spot on my dress and my mom pointed out the spot on my dress because she wanted me to look my best. Right. But I didn't care about the spot, right? And in pointing out the thing that was wrong, she didn't see the things that were right. Yeah. Right? And Yeah, and it's, it's, it's in the bigger lesson very early on is what other pe people think matters a lot more than who you are. Yes. Right. And so take that macro lesson and apply it everywhere. And once you start doing that, you walk into every situation going, I mean, you know, we're in a different situation because your thing is called pink noise and I'm already known for pink. And so I wore my pink shirt, but imagine that I'm wearing my pink shirt cause I'm on with you. But tomorrow when I'm on with someone else, I'm, I'm spending the whole morning worried about do they dress up or do they, do they go casual? Are they in the blue? How will they feel about my pink? Should I wear my regular glasses or my pink ones? What kind of background should I go with? Whereas I don't. And that's part of what's made me successful is people are like, oh, that's hilarious. Look at that pink. Oh my gosh, most guys don't wear that much pink. This is what I bring to every situation. This happens to be a perfect match between you and I, but I do the same thing on every podcast. I do the same thing with every speech. I do the same thing when I stand up with people in any sort of particular audience. I don't do research ahead of time and go, okay, it's orange today because these people, their company colors are orange or, oh, these people really dress up. So I'm going to wear a suit today. I don't change who I am to fit that situation because I don't think that that's the key to success, right? That stop being who you are to make sure that you don't bother anybody else. Um, and so I think, but that's one of the huge ones that we do really, really early on is we say, you know, who you are matters less than making other people happy. Um, and since everybody's into something different, you spend your whole life just kind of, and you stop asking that question, right? You stop asking, who am I? What am I good at? And the question becomes, can I be whatever anybody needs me to be whenever they need me to be it without seeming too odd about it? And that's success. Um, and I don't think it is, but th that's the definition that we get so many times. And, and I agree so much with you. And that's why you're on this show with me yeah. because yeah. 
we are very much in alignment there. And it was in the moments of, of rebellion that I, that I first witnessed who I was as yeah. a child and yeah. as a teenager and as a young adult. And anytime I rebelled because I believed that something else was possible, I saw myself. I saw my true nature. And, and, that, and that is what I'm, that is the only person I care to show up as now. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for sharing these precious minutes with me, sharing your wisdom and your, your magic and your you. You know, be more you, as my friend Evan Green likes to say. Be more yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, I'd like to kind of close with is I think we hear that from a lot of people. The reason we don't is we go, but what about these bad parts of who I am? And so that's really where I try to build on that, that it's because those seemingly negative qualities are also part of those positive qualities. You're stubborn because you're persistent. You're messy because you're creative. You're inflexible because you're so organized. There's always another side of the story. We can be more you and it can work. I think that's what people are afraid of. Okay, yeah, I can be more me and live in a house with seven other artists who can't pay their bills and we sometimes can't you know, have electricity, but we're being ourselves, right? And um, I, I think people, are go they think it's a choice between be more you or be employed, be more you or have a house. Um, and, and I think that's a false dichotomy. And so I think part of what I'm trying to show people is that you works. Um, it's just that we don't see those qualities as unified. We see them as separate and we don't see them as related. And we see this bad that we need to conquer. And so we don't see this good that we can build on. And we end up, we end up giving up and, and just going with, well, what's going to, what's going to, what can I, how can I get paid? How can I move forward? How can I, kind of subjugate who I am in order to have some kind of effectiveness or success. And I think that's when, when we start heading down a path that just keeps cycling into less and less authenticity and more and more frustration and exhaustion and duplicity and uh, unhappiness. And it's, it's, it's harder to leave that later on. The sooner we can stop that slide and start moving on a different path, the better. Um, because the longer you're on that path, the more you kind of feel like, well, you know, it's too late now, right? It's too late to change now. And, and I think that's a shame. And, and that's another reason why, you know, again, I do what I do is to try to tell people that at whatever point they are in their journey so that they can, they can, you know, maybe slowly start veering off in a different direction. Yeah. I found myself feeling really sad with that. The, the last things that you were saying there, the how many people um, feel that they have to endure some normalcy, some society, you know, just fit in, fit into the box and to, to pay the bill and to, right. and, and they'll have almost like, I'll be happy when, right? Like when you retire, it's later, you got to do it later. You do it once a year on vacation. You do it once you retire. That's right. That's, that's when you pursue things you're interested in. And you pull out the good China on a holiday. It's like, no, I want it now. And you know what? If I break it, I break it. Like, I want the good stuff. I, I, people have come to me and said that I've taught them that lesson. Like, you've yeah. got a precious bottle of something. Oh, but let's, let's not use it all up. Why the, why the heck not? Right? Use it up. Like, are you not worth it? Do you not deserve to have that delicious thing as much as you want? And when you're, when it's gone, 
you know, go find some more, go find the next amazing thing to like and and have it all because why not? I mean, yeah. My mom's mom's 73 and uh, we use the China when we come over for middle of the week beef roast now. Excellent. She's like, I'm 73 and we never used it. There's really rarely, you know, once or twice a year, maybe sometimes, you know, why not use it every day? And right, if it gets broken, then, and then pretty soon, maybe you have a mismatch set. You know, the queen isn't coming over. And even if the queen is coming over, she eats off of matching dishes every time. Show her your cool eclectic set, right? So, I mean, and that's part of why this is difficult is because at some point you're reimagining what good is. Is good matching? Is good fancy? Is good right? You can, there's all these different definitions of good. And I think that becomes kind of disorienting for people. When you have one definition, it might be painful and frustrating, but at least you know the direction. When you have tea in the house, you open the cabinet and you pick a one of a kind handmade pottery cup. Yeah. Each, yeah. One is, each one is different. And I don't even want to choose for you. Yeah. I want you to choose the expression of the teacup right. that you want to drink out yeah. of. And, yeah. and I, I hope that that people like you and I in doing this work and for me and amplifying people's gold, that we can get this message to a younger and younger generation. And, you know, truly. Um, Absolutely. I'm so glad that you've specifically published a book for kids and that you speak about parenting in this way, mm-hmm. that a new generation of people can grow up being more proud of all of their eccentricities because that's yeah. gorgeous. That is yeah. beautiful. I agree 100%. That's why I do something like this. And plus, like I said, I just happy to talk to anyone outside of my home during the pandemic. So I'm not gonna, I want that's part of authenticity, right? Not going to lie. Just happy to be talking to another human being outside of my uh, dwelling place. I haven't left the state last year. I did a hundred presentations um, all over the world and I haven't left the state for five months. So yeah, any, uh, any uh, um, opportunities I have. Because again, that's one of my things is communicating. That's one thing I learned during this pandemic. I said, I may not be able to make money as a speaker, but I can make a difference, right? I did a radio show with this guy in Australia and he sent me an email and said his neighbor, who's a teacher came up to him and said, hey, that was really helpful. And I've already used that with parents and students, that freak factor thing that you did with that guy from America. And that was just, you know, that was a million dollars for me, right? That was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, some, some kids got a better classroom in Australia because instead of being depressed about the, you know, the pandemic and the way it's devastated my business, I've been, you know, saying yes to everything, saying yes to anybody who wants to talk, anybody who wants to record something, anybody who wants to get together because the message is really what's more important than the business or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so I found a lot of freedom in that of not like, oh, well, I didn't get paid for that. Or, oh, well, I mean, you know, I guess that wasn't really my business. It's like, no, this message is what matters more than the, the company behind it or the, the need to make a living. And, um, you know, I think that ultimately pays off um, in the long run. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's just a pleasure to do stuff like this. And it's, it's very affirming, too. You talked about the download and the, the transition. I think part of it is just, you know, meeting people like you, finding out you're not alone, right? Part of what I tell people is you have to find people who are weird like you. Um, we think that weirdness might mean being alone, being rejected, being isolated, but it's not. There's always somebody who's weird like you. There's probably a lot of people. I mean, I just watched a, 
documentary on Netflix about speed cubers, people who do Rubik's cubes faster than anybody else in the world, right? But there's a whole tribe of speed cubers. You're a weirdo when you're a speed cuber, but there's tons of people who are weird in the exact same way and you can be friends with them and you can be, um, and it was actually this awesome story about how this kid had autism and had a lot of real struggles and he became very good friends with the best speed cuber in the world. And then he became the best speed cuber in the world and along the way learned a lot of good social skills and was able to build relationships with people because they had the common ground of cubing um, that, that made him more normal, although it's a very weird thing, in a world where he's weird because of his disability, right? Um, and so he was able to connect with somebody um, because of a unique interest and he found other people who are weird like him who accepted him um, because he was normal to them, right? Oh, you love to, to solve cubes as fast as possible, so do we. It doesn't matter if you have autism to us. We just care that you can do it faster than anybody else in the world and we love that about you and we want to take this to the next level. So I think that's one of the keys too is discovering, finding people who are weird like us and that I think every time that happens, that again builds that, that foundation of this works, this, this is right, this is true, I can continue to build my life on this. Um, because there is always that, you know, when, when the other foundation was pretty strong, you know, 18 years, 19 years, 20 years of the same message, it takes a long time to tear that down. It takes a long time to build another one up. And I think relationships and meeting people like you who are then sharing this message with other people, then connecting with those people, it continues to kind of go, okay, there's something here and it's something worth pursuing. I agree. I agree. And part of the way in which, you know, letting my inner weirdo out to play, I found Burning Man in 2004, having been hearing about it for um, maybe five years before then, finally having the courage to go see what this festival yeah. desert was all about. Well, it's, it's, it's an experiment in living. And the 10 principles are such, so rooted in me that my new business model with Pink Noise isn't about exchanging time for money. So, you know, in, in being an excavator, in being an excavator to mine and shine the gold for others, it's what's your desire worth? And after we're done spending time together, you, you choose what kind of energy exchange we're going to have. Yeah. You know, That's like, what I've told people before. Like people say, you know, how do you feel comfortable dressing weird, wearing so much pink, um, being so different? I was like, well, you know, try out whatever you think is super weird. Go to Burning Man and see how weird you are anymore. You know, if I'm at Burning Man in my pink pants, at least I'm wearing pants, right? You know, that's still pretty conventional. Right. Um, you know, you can get into situations where whatever you think is super extreme is actually very normal and almost cliche. Um, and that's part of the amplification. If you can find people who are weird like you, they will push you to discover who you are at an even deeper level and become more of that. And you haven't usually done that because you've been so busy just barely not moderating it. Okay, I wasn't moderating it. I'm willing to be myself. Okay, I'll turn up the volume a little bit, but people probably don't want too much. And then you discover people who want you to turn it up to 11 and that's a whole new experience, right? Yeah, and sure. So, um, I think that's important for us to recognize that environments are really po powerful too. You know, I tell people if I'm walking down the street in Vegas in my pink pants, again, at least I'm wearing pants. No one's noticing that in Vegas because the guy next to me has chaps on and he's dressed like Gene Simmons from Kiss, you know? 
Um, whereas if I'm in a small rural town in North Dakota in my pink pants, I'm a huge weirdo. Mm -hmm. um, but to be able to contextualize it that way and go, oh, so it's not what I am or I'm not. It's oftentimes a lot about where I am, not just who I am. I think that's a powerful message as well. And that starts to change the way we start to think about our business or our career or our lifestyle is that where matters a lot and that who we are needs to match where we are. Um, and if we can do that, we can really, uh, you know, again, the guy with autism who's doing the speed cubing, he's found the perfect match between who he is and where he is. And then people start to see him differently because they don't see the disability, they see the ability, they see the advantage, they see um, the uniqueness that he brings because there's a positive outlet for that. Um, he hasn't changed, situations changed, and then people's perception changes. And that was so many of your stories and your talk, you know, whether it was, you know, going through the drive-through with the change or whether it was the story about people with autism and, and a whole, a whole um, uh, sort of repetitive. Yeah, the company that does software testing, we have to have hyper-focus and do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, I, I watched Priscilla, Queen of the Desert in my early 20s after moving to Seattle from Canada. And my mind gets blown because I see these incredible individuals fully self-expressed. It's a story about drag queens in a van going across the desert. And I think I want to be a drag queen, but I'm a girl. So what's that? And I just decided it's whatever it is. So off I go to buy wigs, buy boas, buy stilettos, buy false lashes. And I start showing up at the, at the gay clubs and I'm now a glamor girl. And that's how I spent most of my twenties. And that outrageousness has stuck with me into, into the rest of my life. And I don't yeah. apologize it for anymore. And I, and I haven't, and I don't, but the way it showed up in high school, I needed permission. And so spirit week was the only time I had permission to dress as outrageous as I wanted to dress and, and to risk, you know, to, to get the, the accolades of like, you know, the tacky tourist dress or, you know, whatever the spirit day theme. It's context. It's okay this week. It's casual Friday. It's whatever it is. It's Burning Man. Oh, okay. You can get away with that at Burning Man, but not in real life. And it's, that's not always necessarily true, but Again, how come it's magically okay during spirit week, but then it's, if you continue to do that, when it's not spirit week, now there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Um, again, it's very conform, contextual. Miss that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. My desire to conform back then was far greater than it is than it became later. And yeah. so the only time I got away with being myself was in this, in this specific week. So it's yeah. interesting to see those threads and to see yeah. what turning points happened. Yeah, I love but, that example. Yeah, and I love for more kids to get this message early on. So again, thank you for doing the great work and for sharing it so um, uh, liberally yeah. <laughs> around the planet. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, it's been great talking to you today. All right, have a good one. Thanks, you too. All right, bye. Bye.